0: So welcome back everyone. It works to have your video on. It's nice to see everyone as I um, speak and then as we talk together. And I'll invite everyone as we sit together and this is for myself as well. As we sit together, see if you can have a sense of being present as you listen. And also notice what might come up in your own experience. You know, again, we can stay with that same set of instructions, noticing if there is something pleasant or unpleasant coming in, maybe mostly listening to talk, but having some inner awareness. So today I want to uh, continue with the theme of the eight worldly winds and go into more depth in it and particularly give an opportunity, if you so choose, for us to take this as a retreat or I should say as a practice theme, if you wish, for the next three weeks until I come back again. You know, one of the, one of the wonderful ways to make daily life practice come alive is to have a particular focus that we can remember maybe each morning, that we can work with in our formal meditation. Maybe we do some reading on it or we do some listening. It can really uh, unify. I have people, quite a few people I work with who have done something like that over years, maybe taking a particular theme for a month or two. And you know, then we, we would work together and we, my person might have some readings, but would bring that into daily life, work, relationships, it could be a theme like uh, generosity or just a theme like um, awareness or mindfulness or could be looking for reactivity or um, could be uh, gratitude, could be developing equanimity, all these possible themes. And they're, you know, one of the ways that, again, daily life practice Comes alive is by having some kind of focus like that, and we could say also the support of a of a group like this. So if that resonates with you, please consider uh, working with this theme over the next few weeks. So the last the last period of time on on going back um, several weeks, I've been focusing on how to have our sense of practice come more alive in daily life. And I've been suggesting that this is for many, if not most of us, a really, really important uh, cutting edge for developing our practice, for developing in the, uh, the beautiful qualities of mind and heart, being more skillful in our action and so forth. And I've also mentioned how Daily life practice can be hard. Many of us have done retreats, which can be quite wonderful and glorious and can reach levels of uh, peace of mind and clarity that are unusual, but they're often hard to keep sustained in the flow of daily life. Things get busy. Uh, We don't have as much support. Maybe we don't uh, have as much formal practice occurring. And so I've tried to give some suggestions for how to have daily life practice come along. And today I'll, I'll be very brief uh, going back over some of what we've seen, but particularly focused today on how we work with noticing uh, reactivity in the mind, and particularly in the context of these eight uh, worldly whims, as they're called, uh, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, sort of a good, good image or bad image of ourselves, praise and blame, which are said to be the winds that blow us around. Anyone been blown by these winds at times? <laughs> right. They blow us around, knock us over, and yet they, um, when we focus on them, it gives us a wonderful uh, sort of uh, map, we might say, of what to look for to really develop in terms of some of our patterns of reactivity and how to transform how we work, uh, how we typically react when these conditions arise. So I mentioned how, uh, last time, how daily life practice is difficult. We don't have as much support. We get very uh, busy often. Uh, And it's also increasingly a very, very uh, busy culture for many of us. You know, this isn't for everyone, but for many of us, uh, things are quite busy and it's hard to keep uh, one center. It's hard to keep sight of what's most important. How many can relate to that? (laughs) You know, that, and so, and so some of what we're talking about can be addressed personally, some of it can, I think, be addressed by really looking to change some of the core values of the society. Or maybe we live in a, you know, more uh, emphasized community in ways that really support us living according to our deepest values. That's what we're really looking for. So here are a few of the supports for daily life practice that I've mentioned. I'll just name these and see what resonate with you. First is the, maybe the most obvious, it's having a regular formal daily practice. And for some of us that don't have that regular practice, that might be the main edge of learning. And that's great. So I'll mention these, not that we should do them all, but just listen for the one or two that that appeal to you. If we already have a regular daily practice, add a second practice that might be 10 or 15 minutes. When we do multiple periods of formal practice, it sort of weaves the day together and we remember more often. Again, we often say mindfulness and even wisdom and compassion are not that hard. They're pretty accessible, but remembering to be aware, that's hard. Mindfulness isn't hard. Remembering to be mindful is quite hard. That's a very important detail. And so the more we can remember, uh, the more we have moments of awareness uh, during our day. And so another way is to find like a few brief times or one or two brief times during the day where you maybe have a pause or it could be like what I I uh, often take uh, a walk or two every day after a meal, right? That just, you know, without any agenda, just to be present, to be aware things like that can help. Community support in groups like this, very, very helpful. Uh, perhaps having one friend that you talk to once a week. You know, I have something like that. You talk once a week with a friend, you check in your peers, and maybe you give each other some, you know, feedback or, you know, support. But once a week talking with someone on can be huge, right? Because, again, we almost develop a kind of accountability towards that person. So that can be a support. Reading, listening to talks can be a support. Uh, The practice of pausing during the day is crucial. You notice yourself reactive, pause, stop. You know, pausing just for five minutes can be huge. And then related to that, in a way, is the practice of the Sabbath, which which I've done a lot for the last 35 or 40 years, which is taking one day a week that's a little bit different and it doesn't have to be the whole day, could be two hours, three hours where you uh, maybe you practice twice a day, take a walk, do some reading, just have it be nourishing for yourself. So those can be helpful. And last time, I think the last few times, and then today we're continuing with this emphasis on uh, practicing with reactivity as a core way to uh, develop in daily life and looking out for moments of reactivity. And here today, we're, we're framing that in terms of these eight different uh, conditions that arise that often lead to reactivity, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, uh, what's called fame and disrepute, uh, praise and blame. And Looking for reactivity or looking for these challenging conditions is in a way not a beginning practice. It's a more intermediate or advanced practice. We have to have really some tools and some basic confidence before we take on difficulties. There's a, you know, the old Tibetan saying, which I like a lot, turn all obstacles into the path of practice. How's that sound? In other words it's really it's really a beautiful model it's saying really that life is about learning. can I take everything as potential learning rather than as a curse or a blessing right that and have that learning be one's most basic framework that's what is really is really being invited and particularly by looking at moments of reactivity sort of when we lose it we're we're taking our difficulties, we might say, as opportunities for learning. It's almost like the old model of alchemy, you know, from, you know, 600, 800 years ago, where they said, how can we turn lead into gold? Well, practicing with reactivity is a way to turn lead into gold. It's a, hopefully that can be an inspiring idea. And it's about eventually when we work with reactivity enough, we also build very beautifully the quality of equanimity, which is a sense of balance. And that's also a kind of confidence of being able to be increasingly with whatever comes up. You know, dental surgery, a needle coming towards my mouth. I've looked at that before. I'm okay. Bring it on! <laughs> I don't know. Well, I, I should I should be careful what I say. But um, any case, when when we a lot of this is based on familiarity with reactivity with what sort of knocks us off center, and that's what our so our practice is a lot about developing beautiful qualities, awareness, kindness, compassion, uh, wisdom. But it's also about developing. More and more balance by as it were studying ourselves when we get knocked off balance that's what this is all about you know and that's why it's not a you know it's not a, a beginning practice in a way even though that's part of what we necessarily see when we look at our minds and again um, we're looking at reactivity I'm defining reactivity as the grasping after the pleasant and the pushing away of the unpleasant and the Pleasant uh, is, can be all sorts of things. It can be a pleasant experience, but it can be all sorts of more complex aspects of pleasant. Pleasant moment with a, uh, a friend or a partner can be a pleasant sight, pleasant thought, uh, can be something, you know, uh, a pleasant taste, uh, good food, all sorts of things. Those, what we're looking at is when we grasp after the pleasant. Uh, Or when we push away the unpleasant, again, the unpleasant can be a whole range of things. The unpleasant can be an interaction with someone. It can be an unpleasant taste. It can be a difficult thought in my own mind, a difficult emotion, something unpleasant physically. You know, it, it can be more complex. It can be someone being judgmental of me, me being someone judgmental of another. It can be you know, anxiety at something coming up. or So there's a whole range by by which we become reactive, grasp after the pleasant, and push away the unpleasant. And the teaching is, and this is really, I think, right at the center of the teachings of the Buddha, the teaching is that this is natural when we have certain old habits and when we don't see as it were, reality clearly. We have some model that grasping after the pleasant and pushing away the unpleasant somewhat compulsively and habitually is a way to be happy. And the teaching is that that actually is not true. We can have a certain level of happiness that way, but the deepest happiness and well-being is more by the equanimity of being able to be open to everything and keep learning from it and respond skillfully to it. So it's actually... So the practice involves being able to be at times with the pleasant without uh, pushing it away. or I'm sorry, without grabbing hold of it or being able to be with the unpleasant without um, without pushing it away. And so... I want to name right away that there are um, some important complexities of this. Again, we have as a core teaching, I think we looked at last time, core teaching that we find in the Buddhist teachings from his awakening, that we have these tendencies, when there's something pleasant, to want it and then to grab it. When there's something unpleasant, to not want it and to push it away. Often that happens very automatically and that the whole formula for practice is to move away from reactivity towards being responsive, coming out of awareness, wisdom, and compassion with each moment more and more. That's the formula. We move from reactivity to responsiveness. That's the heart of 2,600 years of tradition. That's it, right? It can be expressed really, really simply, even though there are all these complex teachings. I want to name four really important complexities about this teaching, which can be con- confusing. The first is that the pleasant isn't by itself a problem. It's just part of life. And that's going to be what we say about all of these pleasant and unpleasant, gain and loss, uh, fame and disrepute, and uh, praise and blame. These just happen but the pleasant isn't a problem. In fact, it can be, can be linked with uh, joy and something wonderful. The problem isn't the pleasant, it's the grasping onto the pleasant. That's the problem. And I, I um, was once working with a group of people, we were working with something like this teaching, and I told them that you know the pleasant isn't the problem. We could next week just sit here the whole evening and eat chocolate, and that wouldn't necessarily be a problem. You know, we could eat we could eat chocolate the whole evening and just watch our minds. And they said, "Let's try it." <laughs> and so we did. We had chocolate for the whole next evening. And I don't know if this is um, I don't know if word of this has spread and it's caught on, and people are just instead of you know, or after the formal meditation, just spending the whole evening eating chocolate and talking about it, but it's valuable. We, and we learn from it. So the, you know, that just to notice, what does one's mind do with chocolate or with something tasting really, uh, really nice. And I think I've told this story before that I once lived in a house was I lived in a group house when I think was, would have been when I was in my twenties, I lived in a group house. We had eight people in the house um uh, and, and including two kids, several animals and it was it was kind of a nice nice communal house and one of the women in the house was uh had been born in iraq and um we had you know we had cooking for everyone you know each of us would take responsibility for cooking one meal, usually one dinner a week anyway but um um my housemate um from who originally from Iraq, she would often uh, on Saturday night uh, cook baklava and she would cook enough baklava so that there was enough for everyone. And there was enough all you can eat baklava. Anyone ever experienced that? All you can eat baklava. Maybe some maybe you know if, if you've lived in some countries maybe you have experienced that. Anyway Um, and so I discovered that what is initially pleasant, when you have enough of it, isn't always pleasant, uh, you know, continually, right? So I would have the baklava, you know, first piece of baklava, awesome, amazing, very pleasant, wonderful, grasping, want more. Second piece of baklava, pretty similar, right? Third piece of baklava, um somewhat trending towards being less pleasant, (laughs) right? Fourth fourth piece of baklava, uh, getting to be neutral, the grasping in the mind still there, but not so pleasant. And the fifth piece of baklava, getting to be unpleasant, the end of baklava for that evening, (laughs) right? And so, Anyone relate to that? Have a similar experience with something that really pleasant. So, so, um, anyway, so the first complexity, something pleasant isn't a problem. The problem is the grasping and the reactivity, right? Because actually what you'll find if you look carefully and I I saw this on, you know, particularly on doing meditation retreats, I noticed that when I was actually eating something pleasant, and having grasping occur in the mind, I was actually thinking about the future. And I wasn't really experiencing the pleasant experience in the present moment. Interesting, isn't it? That when there were, that I had to, in a way, not have grasping to really experience the pleasure most fully. Kind of obvious when you think about it, that when there's something else going on in the mind, you know, wanting something, thinking about the future, when can I do this? Whatever the kind of pleasure there is, there's going to be less pleasure. Does that make some sense? You can see and study it when you when you when you look at this. So that's the first complexity. The problem isn't the pleasant, it's the it's the grasping. And we can be with the pleasant, we can choose to be with the pleasant, and we do this all the time. So the the problem is the grasping, it actually takes us away from the experience of the pleasant. Interesting. So the second complexity is related. It's that, in a sense, the pain isn't the problem either. Pain is, or the unpleasant, is part of life, right? And we can actually learn from it. So if we we, uh, actually try to learn from what's unpleasant, rather than just immediately try to be reactive and get rid of it, there can be something positive that comes, as they say in sports locker rooms, "No pain, no gain." Anyone heard that one? Yeah, I, I, w- I was suspicious of it, though. So, anyway, it has some truth to it. Let's just put it that way. And so, um, so we can learn. From, we can learn from the difficult. A lot of times, we just don't have choice. You know. I don't have choice with my dental surgery. We don't have choice with some illnesses. They happen. And the question is, can I be wise and responsive, or am I going to be reactive? And if I'm reactive, do I have a way of working with the reactivity? So again, pain is just a given at times. Of course, that doesn't mean that you know uh, we should just let the pain be there if it's really making us dysfunctional. That you know, medications, of course, can be helpful. The third, um, the third complexity is that this, is, um, it's, this isn't about passivity. It's about the aim is not just to let the pleasant and unpleasant be there, but the aim really moment to moment is what's a wise response to the present situation. So this isn't at all about passivity or about just letting things just happen. It's about continually, what's the wise, non-reactive response, moment to moment? That's the aim of our practice. That's the entire aim of all that we're doing. It's not just about being passive, watching everything. Sometimes that can be a skillful response, but it's uh, often the skillful response is to say something, do something, work for social change, and so forth. And then... um, the fourth one is, is really quite interesting is that our, and I mentioned this last time, it's that our reactivity can often be mixed up with insight, intelligence, with something important. And so this makes things tricky, right? And so for example, I mentioned the examples, I can be really judgmental of someone really, really reactive about what someone did, and yet I might be seeing something that's important to bring up. I think I gave the example, um, you know, or maybe I've given these examples, one of my coworkers doesn't keep an agreement, right? And I get really reactive about it, really judgmental. But the aim isn't to throw out the reactivity, it's actually to transform the reactivity and I'm seeing something that's important, that I might want to bring up and respond to rather than be reactive. And so I might be reactive about towards myself, judgmental towards myself, for some way that I just acted. Well, I may have some insight there, and the, the, the challenge is, how can I keep the insight and transform the reactivity? So if we just suppress the reactivity, we don't learn from the insight that makes things a little more complex, doesn't it, right? So the aim is really to um, transform the reactivity rather than just suppress it. So it's not, I don't think it's skillful just to say, you're really judgmental, just get rid of your judgment because then you might get rid of the insight that is mixed in, you know? So uh, very obvious with something like social justice issues, I can be really reactive about injustice, and I would say that my reactivity can be a problem. And so the aim is to transform my reactivity, preserve the insight about the injustice, but try to have a more skillful response, right? Yeah. Because the idea is that when I'm really reactive, I don't necessarily have a wise response. I'm just, I'm just um, acting more habitually. And so, but I want to keep the insight that might be there in the reactivity. And so this quality, uh, we could talk about being responsive in a few different ways. But I, I think, again, the, the core of this practice is very, very simple. Be, in a given moment, be responsive rather than reactive. That's, again, that's the entire 2,600 years of tradition That's, you know, I don't know how many books I have on Buddhist practice and other forms of spiritual practice, many, many feet of books. It can be condensed into that one uh, statement, right? And if we remember that, that goes a very, very, goes a very, very long way. And so we could talk about this in terms of non-reactivity, responsiveness. We could also really link the non-reactivity to being free, to acting out of freedom, not being caught in habits, we could connect it with love, with wisdom, and so forth. And so this is really our north star, and I think this is a way to approach these uh, these eight worldly winds. And so these are, again, um, thing, things that happen all the time in themselves are not a problem, but the problem is, is that they very commonly lead to reactivity. That's why they're That's why they're named. One translation calls them the vicissitudes of life. Sometimes they're called the eight worldly winds or the eight worldly conditions. Situations which come up, which when we're not being aware, will tend to lead to reactivity. And so it's almost like if you set your radar out for these, these are really a prime way to develop more balance, more equanimity, and to um, work with a lot of our core habits. <clears throat> and so, again, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, praise and blame. Let's, let's put the slide on now, Toland. We have a, have a slide here. It just shows, shows these. They're the, the Atta Loka Dhamma. Atta means eight, Loka means the world, or sort of the, and Dhamma, means like the condition. And then here's a short, uh, go down a little further, there's a short uh, passage from a text, Gain and Loss, little different translation, status and disgrace, censure and praise, pleasure and pain. These conditions among human beings are inconstant, impermanent, subject to change. Knowing this, the wise person mindful ponders these changing conditions Desirable things don't charm the mind. Undesirable ones bring no resistance. So, again, we can understand that last line that there's, we could translate no resistance maybe as no reactivity, but we still want to respond. You know, doesn't mean if you have an unpleasant experience, you know, uh, on a tooth that you uh, could mean you still respond skillfully. Okay, so let's let go of the slide now. And in the actual text, uh, I'll read a little bit more from here. Uh, It says, For an uninstructed person, there arise these eight worldly winds, and they're named. And then for someone who is a practitioner, these arise. What's the difference between the two? And the Buddha says there's no difference in that all of these arise for both someone who's uninstructed and not practicing, or someone who is what is different is that the with the uninstructed person the these eight conditions will tend to lead to reactivity and with the person who is practicing skillfully they will lead towards a skillful non-reactive response and that's the difference and naming them is uh so helpful for just seeing uh seeing these and so what we want to Look at is just to study these and notice uh, what happens when they occur. In a moment, I'll, I'll talk about some ways further of practicing. I thought I'd read a passage. This is from uh, a Tibetan uh, teacher. Uh, this, is a, this is a story, really, for really from uh, from Tibet, and it talks about different practices. And the punchline is going to be that this is from a a teacher. Name of uh, Jomtompa. And Jomtompa is going to basically say practicing with the eight worldly winds is right at the center of things. And he's, he's actually going to say that this is a more pra- fundamental practice than almost anything else. So there was a, uh, a person at the ancient monastery of Retring whose main practice was circumambulating the stupa. Dromtompa, this great teacher, observing this, said, It is very good that you are circumambulating, but it would be better if you practiced Dharma. And the, uh, the practitioner thought, circumambulation does not seem to be a very good practice. Perhaps I better read scriptures. Drumtampa again told him, You were doing fine with your reading of scriptures, but it would be much better if you practiced the Dharma. But he doesn't tell him what the Dharma is. So the practitioner again thought maybe he should practice meditation. But again, he was advised that although meditation was good, he'd be better off doing pure Dharma practice. The practitioner had now run out of ideas about what he should do, and asked Dronapoma, "What do you mean by pure Dharma practice?" Dronapoma told him, "You should practice." with the eight worldly winds, whoa, so at least from that perspective, this is right at the center of things, right at the center of working with reactivity, so that's from many hundred years ago, so we looked a lot already uh, in the guided meditation at pleasure and pain, but we, you know, the invitation will be to do practice both in formal meditation and in the flow of daily life, and the if we can actually, in our formal meditation, do something like what we did in the guided practice. Set your radar out for when, in the formal meditation, there's a pleasant experience, moderate or greater level, or an unpleasant experience, maybe moderate or a little bit uh, greater level. And when those occur, watch what your mind does with them. Study them. Really notice that do that in your formal meditation and then also try to do that in your in your uh, daily life set an intention maybe once or twice a day when i have a really pleasant experience let me just be with it you could do that maybe for one meal if you really wanted to get into this you could do you could take one meal a day and um notice the sense of pleasant with eating How many people generally choose pleasant foods to eat? Okay, looks like how many people generally choose unpleasant foods to eat? Anyone? I don't. I guess that would have gone back to when they fed you castor oil as a kid or something. But uh, anyway, so this this is something that you can work with on a daily level. Take a meal, watch what you do with pleasant. It's not about getting rid of the pleasant, but noticing if there's grasping any kind of reactivity you know and so we can we can do these in our formal practice and also in our our informal practice really study what is pleasure really like have we really looked into it carefully you know really look at it without the grasping what is the unpleasant really like can i be with this and again uh, can be really uh really insightful uh to to notice this You know, really study it. What I've actually noticed is that a lot depends on the quality of the mind. When I've, particularly in retreats, sometimes when I've been with the unpleasant, sometimes for a sustained period, I've noticed something really interesting, that when my mind is concentrated enough and still enough, and I go into the unpleasant, actually the unpleasant turns into the pleasant. It's very interesting that they are actually, a lot of it's dependent on the nature of the mind being with the pleasant or unpleasant. That at a high level of concentration, even the unpleasant becomes pleasant because the concentrated mind is so deeply pleasurable that it overrides things. That's, you know, uh, it's very interesting. Um, And so... That's, that's a, you know We can do that practice with pleasant and unpleasant. Same thing with gain and loss. We can really work with gain and loss. Notice when that comes up in the mind. Notice if there are habits about that. Notice what happens. I was thinking that in many ways, newspapers are like reports of gain and loss. So I was actually looking at today's newspaper. I have today's San Francisco Chronicle right here. I don't know if you can see at the top. I was reflecting on this. At the top, they have, uh, uh, um, you can see right at the top, the, the basketball player, Stephen Curry. How many people know Stephen Curry? Um, not personally, but just know of him. Anyway, he lives around where I live, not too far. And he signed a $200 million plus contract. So that's gain, right? But I was reflecting Now, maybe his $200 million means that the tickets are going to get more expensive. So that's a loss. So gain and loss are sometimes interconnected. Right below that, the San Francisco mayor had a $22,000 fine for ethics lapses. So that's a loss for London Breed, but it maybe is a gain for the city, and maybe it's a gain for ethics. Who knows? Then, you know, and there are other things that go on. Uh, relic of Gold Rush, you know, uh, a Gold Rush town was burned to the ground by one of the fires. So you can just read in the paper stories of gain and loss. Or you go to the next page. Or, you know, it's a whole, just complete story. Um, Trump-backed candidate wins. That might be a gain. It's a gain for the candidate. It might be a loss for people who think that's not a good thing, right? So gain and loss are so interconnected. Um, I won't go on. You can 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 look at the newspapers or the, hear the news and just notice gain, loss, and then actually see how they're they're very in, they're, they're very connected. Um, and so to notice what happens when there's a gain or a loss. And notice how what your mind does again, the aim is a skillful response. What happens when I lose something? What happens when I break something? You know I know the the Thai teacher Achan Cha used to say, "Look at everything as if it's already broken." He was a teacher of impermanence, right, and so Have you, you know, can look at on a small scale. What happens when you break a plate at home? Just notice what that experience is like. And it's not easy, right? We can relate to that when there is a larger loss, you know. And a lot of what I've experienced in terms of larger losses, I think I mentioned this some last time, but um, what what I've noticed in terms of grief, especially, you know, when I work with people who are experiencing grief, My own experience, particularly with uh, losses of uh, both my parents, has been that the grieving process and loss is very natural, but then the the key is to watch when reactivity arises during the grieving process, when when the grieving process gets stuck. For me, it's been especially noticing when do I get caught in some narrative or some storyline, you know, In grief, it might be, I should have done more, or I should have done this. When do I get stuck with grief? It's usually a story. Can we look at that, you know, with with loss? You know, and it may be something parallel with gain. When do I get caught in reactivity around around, um, a gain? And so the main thing, again, is to look out for these experiences and just notice what the mind does notice what the habits are uh, same thing when there's you know a, a good image of ourselves or a bad image of ourselves you know i think last time i brought up the, the question how many of us have had people who are close to us saying negative things to a third party or greater about us how many have had that experience right right it's uh, probably almost universal It's a very hard experience, right? It can really be uh, gut-wrenching and, you know, all sorts of themes of betrayal. But again, we want to notice how much does that lead to reactivity? You know, can I, you know, and part of the process of mindfulness is being with the reactivity. It's not saying I should just suppress reactivity. It's can I be present with the reactivity, you know? And there, there are a lot of interesting stories, particularly in the Zen tradition, of Zen teachers who were, um, you know, accused of something, got a bad reputation, and then later were shown not to have done what was uh, accused. They were accused of, and the stories are always of them having complete equanimity through the whole process, you know, saying we don't, I don't care what others think of me, I just stay with my practice, right? That's kind of the ideal, but they're. But there, there's a pointing to how can I work with these the uh, negative images or the positive images, you know? And you know, there's a there's a nice story that I I like a lot from the this is actually from the Jewish tradition. It's of um, it's of a uh, one day one day in the synagogue, a rabbi feels tremendous spiritual um, what. Uh, uh, energy and has a sense of you know the glory of God and the creation, and gets down on the floor of the synagogue and starts saying i 'm nothing i 'm nothing i 'm nothing you know at which point the uh the cantor also gets inspired and goes down on the floor of the synagogue and says i'm nothing i 'm nothing i'm nothing they 're both there, and then the uh the Shabbos, who's basically the janitor, gets overcome with spiritual emotion and gets down on the floor of the synagogue and says, I'm nothing, I'm nothing, I'm nothing. And then the, the rabbi comments to the uh, cantor, look who thinks he's nothing. <laughs> right? So it's kind of like a uh, spiritual image has has developed and something we can find. I know a, it's, a, it's a big part, especially if if meditation is part of your life, that a sort of spiritual image develops. Maybe for some people at times, anyone ever had spiritual image manifest in the clothes you wear or how you talk to people or how you think of yourself? Anyone had anything like that? We can have stories later. They're kind of fun to look at. You know, for me, I think my, my conditioning was kind of, maybe like many of you, was kind of to be perfectionist. And so if I was doing meditation, I had to be the best meditator you know, and, and so I had an image and I remember one retreat. I I actually was really concentrating long. I would sit longer than other people, you know, it kind of got into self-image. Anyone ever had meditative self-image? It can be, in retrospect, it's kind of humorous, but it, in the moment, it's not so much fun. <laughs> you can see it. And, and during this retreat, I was just, uh, you know, trying to sit longer than other people. And then, you know, as you might expect, reality had a way of dealing with me and I got a bad cold and I couldn't sit very long. I was sniffling the whole time and I was just sitting there thinking I'm not a good meditator. And I was going through like a breakdown of my own self-image, which was not, not fun. Right. Uh, But it was in retrospect, it was tremendous learning, right. That I got right in my face, this, uh, experience that let made me have to look at my self-image, you know, and in a retreat, I got to look at my self-image like that for 15 hours a day. And so it was, you know, much quicker than psychotherapy. And uh, anyway, so that's something that, something that uh, we can look at. And then the last one, very related, praise and blame, just to, uh, again, the invitation will be look at moments when you're into praising others, praising yourself, blaming others, looking at the judgmental mind, blaming yourself, blaming others, and just noticing how strong that is, how strong that energy is, um, you know, how we are so fearful of other people's blame, right? It's such a huge thing, right, for most of us, and how we we do that. And just to notice that, it's it's a whole... It's a whole area we can go into a lot of depth on. Again, many of you know I, I teach a lot on transforming the judgmental mind and working with this, both in terms of how we relate to others, how we relate to ourselves, and it's powerful. It's powerful in um, in ourselves, as you know. It's uh, yeah, it's very very strong energy to uh, to praise. Uh, to praise others, to want to be praised, to have one's self-image be a certain way. So I'll finish by talking about a few ways to practice with these that, you know, in addition to what I've already said. Number one, set the intention in your formal meditation and in uh, daily life to look at these eight, to have them come up, or maybe you want to just focus on a few of them. But working with intentions once or twice a day really, really helps. You can do some readings on them. Listen, maybe listen to this talk again. That can be be helpful. Second point is, especially when you have unpleasant experiences, assess the level of reactivity. If this is whether there's any of these eight, we want to be able to bring mindfulness and awareness to these. But if the level of reactivity is too high, it may be too much for us to work with. And you know, particularly if there's something like trauma involved with some of these, which there can be. And so, what I'm guiding us in is when it when things are in the workable range. You know, I like to use that scale of one to ten. So maybe it's you know up to level seven or eight when things are nine or ten out of a scale of ten. We might use other other um, approaches. When something comes that's strong, we may if it's overly strong and it's very hard to be mindful. Then we want to pull back or get out of it. And so that can be, you know, if that comes up. Or we may want to work with a professional, you know, maybe with a therapist or someone who's skilled with trauma for the really intense ones. So very good to assess the level of, of, um, of reactivity or what's coming up with these. Uh, then thirdly, we want to just give it a name. Be mindful. Notice you know have you know you can put the eight worldly winds on your refrigerator, have them up so you can name them. that goes a very, very long way. then fourthly, see what they're like in our experience, investigate them, you know like like for me when I was at that retreat and I was uh sniffling and I was kind of judging myself for having cold, which is kind of crazy to start with, but there 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 I was you know you know my my uh I was just being really hard on myself just because I had a cold, which I had no choice over. But, you know, that was what was happening, right? And, but I, but because it was a retreat, I got to watch it over and over again. And I learned something really, really relatively quickly. But, you know, from watching that for quite a few days on end, it was pretty intense, but I learned something from it. And it was, I was generally balanced enough so I could stay with it. So investigate what's it like, when these eight winds are, you know, lead to reactivity, what's it like in the mind, the body? What are my patterns? Which one of, the, which one of these eight winds is the most hard, hard for me? What's the most intense? For a lot of us, it could be praise and blame. That can be really strong. But notice, notice the pleasure and pain and, and so forth. What are my top five ways I get reactive with these? Let me explore them. We can also, for, uh, this is, I think, the uh, fifth. Bring in the wisdom teachings. Notice that these are impermanent, that they're fleeting. You know that uh, even my self-image is, uh, you know, it changes. You know, I can be in a really good place, and then something happens, and my image may be worse or better. Right. So notice the impermanence. I remember, you know, uh I heard this a long time ago, but some uh, meditation teachers would say you're only as good as your last dharma talk. <laughs> it was kind of funny. But uh, you know, basically that if you if you bomb a talk, I think they were I don't know, that's that, that's what people said. I don't I don't really agree with that, but that anyway, that's what some people said. That you know but the point is that uh you can feel really good and then something happens and it can put you in a little bit of a hole. So just to notice the impermanence of all this, uh, you know, is this a gain or a loss? There's a famous story, uh, Chinese story of a uh, Chinese farmer, whose son uh, found a wild horse. And um, he was asked, uh, you know, he was told, Oh, such a gain so wonderful and he said don't know basically didn't want to get attached to the gain. the next day the son tried to uh, work with the horse fell off off the horse and broke his leg neighbor came by and said oh so bad and the farmer said don't know (laughs) the next day the, uh, the military came by and they would have taken away his son for the military, except that he had a broken leg, and the uh, you can tell how this keeps on going, and and the neighbor came by and said to the farmer, "Really good," and the farmer said, "Don't know," <laughs> and so that's a, remember that story. So anyway, so look at look at the impermanence. Uh, keep on doing this, and we develop in equanimity. We develop in balance. And then lastly, learn how to respond skillfully when uh, one of these eight winds are, are there. What really helps me to respond skillfully? So let me close by inviting us to um, set your intention. How many of you would like to look at these eight wins maybe in the next week, two weeks, three weeks? How many of you would like to continue to look at this? Yeah. Great. So set your intention. What's going to help you to practice, to remember to practice? What part of your life will you particularly want to look at in terms of these eight winds? And then I'll close with a short passage from someone who I've met uh, who's one of the great sort of organized Buddhist uh, organizers um, really of the last hundred years. This is Dr. Uh, Aryaratni from Sri Lanka who uh, developed a network, community network of about 15,000 communities who are connecting Buddhist practice with daily life and social engagement. And their network had a more effective response to the tsunami 15 years ago than the government did. Pretty interesting, right? And so this is what he said. He was really stressing how he had had his ups and downs over the years, but that the real thing was to keep learning. So this is what he said. When I do something with good intentions and I quote-unquote fail... I do not take it as a failure. It may be a failure to others, but to me it is not a failure because that failure may have taught me equanimity or detachment or renunciation. In learning to accept failure, in a sense, I succeed. Every action that I carry out carries an internal reason which is always beneficial to me. So I'll end with that. Let me invite now any thoughts or reflections or questions or sharing, maybe a story of how you learned with one of the eight worldly winds. It could be a question you want to ask. Again, you can use the raised hand function or possibly, if it's better for you, to send something to Tolan through the chat. Could be sharing a story of how you learned from something maybe which was difficult or a loss, how it led to something positive. I think, Emily, you actually told that story already, really, didn't you, about how difficult uh, an illness really brought your family together, if I remember that correctly. That's really, really, uh, you know, uh, seeing, taking it all as learning and seeing the positive as well. Mm
1: Donald, I have a question in the chat.
0: Okay.
2: Um, they, uh, the person is just asking um, if you could, um, uh, they wanted to know the people that you had cited in your talk, specifically the one you just cited now, and then the, the teacher, the Tibetan teacher, um, with a story about the stupa. Oh, yeah. what, the, what was the name of that teacher? Um, if you could share that, maybe just type it in the chat, I think, for this person. Yeah, or
0: I can I can name the uh, the Sri Lankan teacher... Dr. A. T. Ariyaratni. and he's the founder of a organization called Sarvodaya in Sri Lanka. S. A. R. V. O. D. A. Y. A., which has this incredible network of people. And he actually the 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 term he used Sarvodaya actually comes from Gandhi, so it's really a term that Gandhi used as well. And the, the story, actually, the quote, I actually had it in, in my book, The Engaged Spiritual Life. So I took the quote from my own book. So minor plug, if you want to hear read the story in its fullness, you can get my book. Okay. And then the, the other one was a Tibetan teacher, uh, Drom Tonpa, D-R-O-M-T-O-N-P-A. You may be able to find that, uh, on the web, but you know, there was a story about the, the practitioner who was told that the uh, right at the heart of practice is to work with these eight worldly winds. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, Maureen, please. So Maureen, you can unmute. can unmute. Yeah, please.
1: I think I'm unmuted now. Yeah. Hi. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure that this is something, but I, I just wanted to ask. And one of the things I've learned is I have a very poor sense of direction. Hmm. So um, sometimes, although my path may be to go to one place, uh, with my poor sense of direction, I may end up in another place that has uh, just much benefit. It's a loveliness, like um, uh, maybe I was on my way to the store and ended up in a, at a lovely park, you know? <laughs> That's interesting. But, you know, I, I don't get upset about getting lost anymore because I know that um, that eventually I'll find my way where I want to go. So I, I look at those experiences not with um, anxiety and being upset that about getting lost, I just kind of relax and go with the flow.
0: That's great, is, is Maureen. I know
1: kind of something along those lines. That's
0: great, but so, I, I imagine that you went through a process though, where at some point you didn't feel good about that tendency, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I'm retired, so <laughs> <laughs> I lost that urgency.
0: Right, so so maybe there are less, fewer consequences, but but oh, but then oh. yeah, but the, I think part of the point is that's a beautiful report, but and the, and there also was a process of learning, right, and kind of working oh. with um, the reactivity. So, but it's it's great that that happened, and you can see, you know, like all of us have some limits or some shortcomings, if you want to call it that, mm-hmm. and and can and they're not, you know, some of them maybe we can work with, some of them are hard to, they're just there. And so how to actually see, oh, look at that. Uh, Some really positive things. I wouldn't have had that unless I didn't get exactly to the place in the most direct way.
1: (laughs) Unless I veered.
0: Yeah, wow. And probably other people can think of stories like that, right? So, Thank you. Uh, Pamela, please.
2: There we go. Okay. Well, thank you for the talk. Um, I I took a lot of notes, and I uh, I appreciate the supports you have listed. I want like, you know I'd like to kind of implement um, you know another daily practice, and and also that taking one day a week to make it special. You know, take some yeah. time, two to three hours. As far as something that's kind of gotten my um, goat, so to speak, lately, I fell for this guy and um you know we went out once i mean we talked a lot but i don't think it's going anywhere and um it's helped your talk has helped me see that well what could i learn from it you know maybe the letting go is a good thing Mm -hmm. And the other thing, you know, without, like, focusing on his faults too much, you know, he may not have been good for me, you know, at all.
0: Right.
2: (laughs) What do I know? Sort of like that farmer. Like, maybe that would not have been good, you know? (laughs) Right. Um, I don't know what his political beliefs are and, you know, all this stuff, uh, you know. So, anyway, that was helpful because that's something that's been kind of a, a theme at late for the last few weeks. And, uh, so it gave me some tools to kind of look at it, you know, more learning light.
0: Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Pamela. There's so much there. We could, we could devote a whole six month cycle to close relationships and spiritual practice. Right. I actually once did some writing on it, you know, uh, you know, quite some time ago, I, had a, I was editor of a, a journal, a co-editor, and I, we had a whole issue, I think, on intimate relationships and spirituality. And the, uh, I think the, uh, my co-editor, the two of us, uh, who wrote, who uh, did all the editing and did a fair amount of writing as well, um, I think um, at the time that the uh, it was actually published, our relationships had ended. <laughs> so here we were the experts, right? So anyway, there's there's so much there. It was like that Rumi poem I read last week about uh, you know, you know the loss you're experiencing maybe cleaning you out for some future delight. <laughs> right. Right. So there there's there's so much there that we could look at uh gain and loss and self-image and the repetitive mind. So, yeah. Thank you. Thanks for bringing that up. And something, again, we could just go in a lot of directions with that, but it sounds like you're really working with that skillfully. Uh, Maybe last one, Harrison, please. Hi, Donald. Hi.
3: Um, Good to
1: see
3: you. I don't really know how to ask this, but um, so I've, I've noticed this before, especially on retreat and also like in the sitting today. And then you mentioned it later that there's a point in, concentration where the the note like the kind of uh, duality of pleasure and pain fall away or, yeah. or pain becomes pleasure or they become in, indistinguishable because I've noticed for me it's when like this when the self really drops away that's when I stop having like the notion of the good and bad and it just becomes experience and that's really great like it I really I really feel like you know when I've when I've had that then after I'm done sitting or I'm going about my day I'm like that was a really good sit that was that was it yeah but I don't I feel like there's a bit of a bit of clinging there and maybe a bit of wanting to kind of jump over the pleasure and pain like jump into this this next state which isn't always really directly attainable so I'm wondering just like in in daily life like how you approach that maybe maybe that feeling of wanting to Jump past the uh, those the the worldly winds a little bit. Yeah,
0: that yeah, sense? yeah. Thank you, Harrison. No, it make, it makes sense. It's a, it's an important question because we can uh, sometimes, if we uh, go deeply, particularly in retreats, usually accessible more in retreats, at least initially, we can have experiences where our usual reactivity isn't there in the same way. You know, where we, we may even at the level of physical, uh, physically pleasant and unpleasant experiences where that's what uh, the story I was telling from my own experience that at a you know, pretty deep level of concentration, what we call um, physical pain is actually just very, very strong sensation. And, uh, you know, in, when I was practicing, I had a sense that I wasn't causing harm to my body but I would just be with that strong sensation. And it was pretty revelatory to see that actually uh, with deep focus, it was just a very strong sensation, which actually became pleasurable. And, um, and so I think, that, I think one way to take um, that experience and have it be helpful for daily life is more at the level, we might say a wisdom level, that it maybe can help us to be to see that uh, my reactivity or my experience, my reaction, my grasping after the pleasant, my pushing away the unpleasant, is dependent on a lot of conditions, and to know that if I was had a you know a particular state of mind, I wouldn't I would be experiencing it differently, and so I can know I can it can give me some reason to not take it quite as seriously as I might otherwise, you know and the aim is always to do a give a skillful response but to to know that it's dependent on conditions and i know i do have experience of if my mind was in a certain state it would be different but again like you suggest we don't want to cling to that you know experience or try to make it be there it's not really uh it's not really so accessible for most of us in most of daily life and there's tremendous learning to be there when we actually work with the reactivity. So I think, I think mostly let it inform your wisdom. So you don't get quite as, uh, caught in the reactivity. That'd probably be my main counsel. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Harrison. Great. So let's, let's finish up now. And I want to, uh, again, thank Tolan so much really, uh, the eight worldly winds comes and come and go, but Toland is very steady. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, so let's just close in two ways. Come back to our intention for the next period of time. If you want to work with these practices. especially what's going to help me to remember when things get a little bit busy. And then finally, we uh, close with the traditional dedication of merit. May, our practice, our exploration of the eight worldly winds. May it be beneficial to us, and I think we can easily see how it can also be beneficial to others. May our practice be beneficial to us, beneficial to others. And then in ways, some of which are clear, some of which are mysterious, may our practice be a benefit to others, ultimately to all others, knowing that we are part of all beings. So thank you so much for your kind attention, for your practice, for your sharing of your own experience, and um, hope to see you in three weeks. My mouth will be a little bit different; it's impermanent, and uh, may may all go well in the next few weeks. So, if you want to unmute, you can, Tolan. You can let everyone unmute. We can say goodbye to everyone.
1: Bye-bye. Blessings, Emily,
0: for all that's coming next.
1: Yeah. Bye. Bye-bye, nice bye. nice so you know. bye. 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 Donald. Bye, Donald. Thank you, everybody. Okay, till thank you next time.
0: Thank you for your practice, thank
1: thank you for yeah. your practice well, Donald. Thank you. thank you so much. Thank you, Donald. <laughs> your surgery. Thank you. Thank you so Help much. I'll be sending healing prayers. I'll thank you, you
0: everyone. <laughs> thank
1: you. Thank you.
0: Bye-bye. Thank you.
1: Bye. bye Thank you, Tolan.
0: Thanks, Tolan.
2: Thanks, Dylan. Thanks, Donald.
0: Thank you. Mm -hmm. Bye-bye.
2: With your your teeth. I'll see you Thursday.
0: Thank you. That's right. (laughs) Bye. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.